Okay, Revelation. Now we're in Revelation 7 this morning, and there's been a bit of Revelation language in the media this week. I don't know whether you caught it. Um, not, I'm not thinking of the God particle, but something a little bit more trivial, the fog, the fog in Auckland over the last few days. And did anyone catch the word that the, the Herald used to describe the fog? The fog apocalypse. That's what it was, the fog apocalypse. Yeah. If there were ever two words that did not sound good together, they've got to be fog and apocalypse. I mean, it took me a long time just to practice that so I could try saying that, fog apocalypse. Just give that a go. It doesn't work, does it? But just, to, just goes to show that, uh, you know, revelation is still alive and well in our popular consciousness. Whenever there's some significant weather event, we want to link it either to Armageddon or the apocalypse. We'll try and match it up with one of those two words somehow, even if it sounds really, really forced, as it did. So Revelation 7 this morning, and uh, let me just, before we read this, let me just give you the run-up here, because Revelation does unfold as a story, as a narrative, and it's helpful to catch the flow of the action and the sequence of events that have been happening. Uh, going back a few chapters to Revelation 4, we, we, we saw, you remember, the great heavenly throne room scene with the one on the throne who was holy and glorious and gracious. Uh, then we saw the lamb in front of the throne, the lamb who was standing but slain, the slain lamb. And we saw the lamb uh, exhibiting, representing Jesus, expressing this lamb power of strength and weakness, strength demonstrated through self-giving love. And we saw the lamb then take the scroll, the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne, and proceed to open the seven seals. And this is what Andrew went through last week, the first six of them in Revelation 6. And as he opens these six seals, you have this catastrophic destruction upon the earth. You have uh, war and famine and conquest and death and all of these layers of, of judgment and destruction that are, that are unleashed. And as you move through Revelation 6, those layers of destruction just get more and more intense. The images are piled up, the judgments get more severe, things get worse and worse. You get to the end of Revelation 6 and you just have this, this anticipation of what the final seal is going to be. You've had six seals and then an earthquake uh, following that and everybody at the end of Revelation 6 cries out, who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? Literally, who can stand? Who can possibly stand in the midst of this devastation and destruction? And we're waiting for this seventh seal to be opened. And then in Revelation 7, Revelation does what Revelation is going to do time and time again. It messes with us. And just when you think you're going to get the seventh seal, there's an intermission. And Revelation 7 is an interlude, nice little interlude. You don't get to the seventh seal until the beginning of chapter 8. What you get in Revelation 7 is this intermission. Revelation's going to do this all over the place. It's going to mess with our sense of time. It's going to mess with our sense of place. It's going to mess with the narrative flow of the book because it will not allow you to get comfortable. It will not allow you to get into much of a rhythm. It won't allow you to feel like you've kind of got it because that's the whole point of Revelation. You don't have it. You'll never get it. It defies our expectations and our attempts to contain it. So just when you're expecting one thing, it'll fly off in a different direction. And this Revelation 7 is a good example of that. Now, it's, it is an intermission, but it's a very important intermission. This is not sort of eat your popcorn kind of intermission. This is important stuff, both for understanding what's come before in the destruction of Revelation 6 and understanding what's coming for the rest of the book. So let's read this together. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, 
holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits upon the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, the chapter starts. John looks and he sees four angels at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back these winds from uh, destroying or causing harm to the earth. I think those four winds are probably identical to the four horsemen of Revelation 6. War, plague, famine, death. They're probably the same sort of destruction that's about to be unleashed upon the earth. So what you're seeing in Revelation 6 is simply another view, uh, Revelation 7, another view of what we saw in Revelation 6 with these destroying, now they're pictured as winds that are about to blow upon the earth. But just before they start blowing, just before the angels unleash these winds to cause harm to humanity, to cause harm to creation, another angel pops up and he says, hang on a minute, don't unleash these winds until we've placed a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And that group of servants numbers 144,000. Now, first question, who are these 144,000 people? Well, the, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a theory on this. In fact, they're famous for it, aren't they? That's, that's probably how they're most well-known. Uh, I used to work with a Jehovah's Witness woman, not on the Shaw Community Church staff team, um, you'll be pleased to know, but in a, in a former job. And I had a chat with her one day by the photocopier about these 144,000, and I asked her, 
uh, who do you think they are? Who, who, who are these 144,000? And she said, these are the ones, the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses, that get to heaven. So they're the ones who have a special place in heaven. And I said, well, that seems like an awfully small number of people who would get to heaven. So, I mean, surely all those tickets are already gone. What happens to everyone else? What happens to all the rest of you? Uh, and she said, well, that's okay, because even if we're not part of the 144,000 in heaven, we still, the rest of us, get to inherit the new earth. So in their view, there's the split-level paradise where you have the elite 144,000 in heaven, and then you have the rest of the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses uh, inheriting the earth. Now, I tend to think that's about the opposite of the way Revelation actually moves. I think Revelation moves towards the new earth is the first prize, that the renewal and the recreation of the earth is exactly what we're going to inherit, and that's the ideal, that's the goal. But the bigger issue here, the bigger issue with that theory and other theories, is that you just can't take these numbers in Revelation literally. They're not intended to be taken literally. You don't take the colors in Revelation literally. You don't take these symbols in Revelation literally. That is just not how apocalyptic literature works. These numbers are symbols. They have a representative value, not a literal value. And the number 144,000 is built on the number 12, which in Revelation represents the people of God, the faithful followers of the Lamb. And so this number of 144,000 simply represents all those who follow the Lamb, all those who love Jesus, all those who are followers of Christ. It's the church, which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you're in this group. Not just in the future, right now. You're part of the 144,000. The reason that this group is described with all of the Israel language as coming from the tribes of Israel, as being, and they list the tribes of 12,000 by 12,000, is because John wants us to understand that the church, the followers of Jesus, now comprise the true and faithful remnant of Israel. The church, now the followers of the Lamb, are the reconstituted form of Israel. Jesus has come as the true and faithful Israelite, and true spiritual theological Israel is now all those who worship and follow the Lamb. That doesn't exclude Jewish people by any stretch. Let me say that clearly. But neither does it exclude anyone from any other race. This 144,000 people includes followers of Jesus from among Israel, from among uh, Palestine, from Syria, Venezuela, New Zealand, even Australia, any country. It's all of us together. It's every nationality. We're all the 144,000. So, the question is, what does it mean then if we're part of this group that we receive this seal? Because that's what happens. They receive a seal on their foreheads. Now, the seal in Revelation means a couple of things. Firstly, it's a mark of identity. If you receive a seal in Revelation, it's a, it's a mark of allegiance. It's you're part of a particular team. The people who receive the mark of the beast... It's a mark of their allegiance to Rome, that they're identified with Rome, that they are, in a sense, the property and possession of the empire. They've pledged their loyalty to Rome in the empire. Those who are marked with the seal of the Spirit of God, by contrast, are those who are identified with Jesus, identified with the Lamb. They're on His team. They're in His tribe. They have given their allegiance to Him. So it's that mark that we are identified with Christ. We are owned by Him. We are His possession, if you like. But the seal also has, in Revelation, the sense of protection. 
not just identification, it also in some way protects us, and this is where it gets thorny. Because it's very tempting to imagine that maybe having the seal means that we are protected from all the sufferings back in Revelation 6. All the war, the conquest, the famine, the death, maybe we get a bit of an escape pass from that. And in fact, there's an entire end times theory that has arisen around the idea that there's going to be this future time of tribulation and suffering and we are going to be, we're going to get like an escape hatch and be raptured away so that we don't have to deal with that and we don't have to be there through the suffering. And I think this represents something deep within the Christian psyche that we somehow want to believe that God is going to prevent us from having to go through severe suffering. We hope for that in the future. We hope for that in the present, that if we can just pray hard enough, if we can just believe strongly enough, if we can be faithful enough, if we can live well enough, then surely God has some obligation to prevent us from severe suffering. We know we're going to have niggles. We know there's going to be difficulties and life's not always going to be straightforward, but surely God's going to prevent us from atrocity. Surely he's going to prevent us from the worst. Surely he's going to prevent us from those cruel twists of fate where it's like the knife just gets twisted. Surely if we are faithful Christians and we love Jesus, we're not going to have to go through that kind of rubbish. But if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest about life, we know that's just not the case. There is no promise in the Bible that we are going to be spared from, prevented from, any kind of suffering. In fact, what you have in the Bible is quite the opposite. You have Jesus saying, in this life, you will have trouble. Couldn't make it much clearer. In this life, you will have trouble. Life is difficult. Life is going to be hard. Life will throw you a series of challenges. Life is suffering to a greater or lesser extent. It's going to be marked by hardship and pain. And if you're not going through something difficult right now, you soon will be. Aren't you glad you came? What a pick-me-up message. Life is hard. It's difficult. And I think part of the reason that we feel when stuff comes into our life and we, and we go through hardship, we feel so ripped off, we feel so angry at God, is because maybe we were expecting it to be different. Maybe we were deep down hoping that God would spare us from that stuff. And our expectations of life don't match up with reality, so we get mad at God. But when you reconcile yourself to this idea, life is suffering, life is hard, then in a sense, as Scott Peck says, in a sense when you get, get your head around that truth, life gets, gets easier. Not that your problems go away, but that you can actually deal with life as it is, not in a passive form of denial. But you understand life is going to be difficult, and so you are ready. You understand, you, you, you get it, you accept it. The seal of God does not mean that we are protected in any way from suffering. Following Jesus is never an express lane ticket beyond and around suffering. What it means, I think, is that we are sealed and protected in the midst of suffering. God doesn't protect you from suffering, but He protects you in suffering. I think the seal is best identified with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul referred to this in Ephesians 1.13. He says, When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. See, when you believed in Jesus, God marked you with that seal. 
That's his presence in your life. And that the idea of that seal is that the Spirit's presence in your life demonstrates that you are owned by God. You are held by Him. You are marked by Him. You're on that team. You're identified with the Lamb. You're part of the 144,000. And the Spirit of, of, of God is not just beside us as we go through difficulties, but within us. This is the hope you've got if you're walking through a valley at the moment. God's not just walking beside you. He's not just there. He's within you by His Spirit. You are sealed by the Spirit, and that Spirit strengthens you from within to be able to withstand. And the Spirit ministers to your own spirit that assurance that God is with you, whatever you're going through, no matter how much rubbish life is dishing up. Whatever valley you're walking through, the presence of the Spirit, that seal of the Spirit in your life, means that God is holding you in His hands right now. He's not going to let you go. He's not going anywhere. He's with you and He is within you. He's never going to abandon you. doesn't matter how hard it gets. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to give up on His promises to you. He will not turn His face away from you. He will not turn His back on you. Evil can do its worst in your life. The winds will be unleashed. The angels don't hold them back forever. Those winds are going to blow. If they're not blowing right now, they will be. But as evil comes against us and we feel the weight of the brokenness of this world, we have that assurance that evil in itself has no power to pluck us out of the hand of God. Evil in itself has no power to separate us from God. Paul says it, neither nakedness nor famine nor death nor hardship nor plague nor the sword, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's because of the presence of the Spirit. The four horsemen are going to ride and the winds are going to be unleashed, but evil can never separate you from God. You can walk away. You've always got that choice. But evil itself, the stuff you're going through right now, has not the power to wrench you out of the grip of grace. It just cannot. That's the power of the seal of the Spirit of God protecting your faith in the midst of suffering. I was talking this week to a friend of mine, Sean Young, who used to come to our church, and he went through a really difficult marriage breakup several years ago. Uh, One morning he woke up with his wife by his side, and by 11 a.m. that morning she turned to him and she said, it's over, I can't do this anymore. It just came out of the blue for him, he wasn't expecting it at all, and, and he rung me, I remember that morning he rung me, And we were on holiday in the South Island, and he just was so stunned by what had happened. And I didn't really have much to say either, other than just start by getting into Scripture and by praying, anchor yourself there, and and go from there. And this began one of the darkest, the darkest times in Sean's life, over that next year at least. Uh, Times of severe anxiety, times of feeling like an absolute failure, just in in the pit. And he shared with me this week how even during that really, really dark valley, there were some specific ways, some powerful ways in which God demonstrated his presence with Sean, the way that Sean experienced that seal of God, uh, even in the midst of suffering. He talked about his life group, a life group in this church that uh, didn't didn't give him all the answers, didn't need to, but it, 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 it listened. The people in that group cried with him. They prayed with him. They walked with him. On that journey, they reflected something of the love of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit to him. And there was one couple, particularly within that group, who really journeyed close with him, 
who really walked right alongside him. They opened their home to him. They made themselves completely accessible and available to him just to be there and, and, and do what they could to strengthen him through that time. He shared how he was led into particular passages of Scripture like Isaiah 40. An unlikely passage in some ways talks about the greatness of God, the bigness of God. But Sean emailed me and he was saying how this passage that just spoke of the absolute holiness and transcendence of God assured him that God was in control even though he was a poor and desperate man. Even though he had nothing to bring, nothing to give, and he was at the bottom of the pit of despair, he had that sense of being held in the arms of the God who breathed life into the universe. And the bigness of God just enveloped him and enabled him to stand firm. That's what having the seal of the Spirit in our lives does in the midst of suffering. It enables us to stand firm. Because Revelation 7 is an answer to the question posed at the end of Revelation 6, who can stand? When these winds blow, when these horsemen ride, when, when evil does its worst, who can possibly stand? And the answer is, as we see in Revelation 7, those who are marked with a seal of God on their foreheads. It is precisely those who can stand. It's people like Sean who can stand, not because of anything in him, not because of some great power, just conjuring up willpower and strength, not because of positive thinking or pop psychology, but because he was anchored in the presence and the grace of Jesus. And he knew that power in his life, and he knew even when he had nothing, that God had all that he needed to sustain him. He wrote this in his email to me. It was in the darkest hours of my life that the true light of Christ would break in. I was at the end. I had nothing left, and I found that that is when God can really work. I came to the understanding that I really had nothing to help myself through this, but that God had everything I needed. I know it is pretty easy to tell people just to let go and let God, but when I was in the darkness, it was pretty easy because I had nothing. That's where he was. And in an amazing way, he knew what it was to have the seal of God that, that he was protected, not from all of this, but in the midst of it. Protected by the presence of God, and he experienced it through God's people, and he experienced it by God's Spirit, and he experienced it from God's Word. It's that seal of God that enables us to stand firm, cling to the cross, stay anchored in the grace of God, even when evil does its worst. And the Spirit of God that seals us and marks us as Paul says in Ephesians 1, is also a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. The Spirit also points us forward. Not just hope in the midst of suffering, but hope beyond suffering. And this is exactly where Revelation 7 goes at the end of the chapter, in the second half of the chapter. Verse 9, you have a scene change. And now all of a sudden you have this great multitude, a countless multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation standing before the throne. I think it's the same group, the same group as the 144,000, but just from a different perspective. Revelation will do this all over the place. The same events, the same people, but now seen in a different light. Think about it this way. The first half of Revelation 7 with the 144,000 is like a snapshot of just before the race starts. And then the end of Revelation 7 is like a snapshot of after the race is finished. Now at this stage, here is a picture of life in the new creation because these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, as verse 14 says. Not some future time of tribulation that's going to happen one day, but the tribulation of this life, 
the tribulation of the here and the now and the present. This life is tribulation. This world is tribulation. And here is a beautiful picture of what it is when we've come through it and we've come out of it. And now we are in the new creation, worshiping God around the throne with the Lamb, this countless multitude that Jesus has purchased people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they're all there. By the way, I think this is an answer to, to God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. When God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. I think on that day, in this day here in Revelation 7, with the countless multitude there, Abraham among them, you can just imagine God turning to Abraham and saying, see, I'm a God who keeps my promises. And this is exactly what I promised you at the beginning of the biblical story. This whole scene in Revelation 7 from verse 9 is built on a picture of the Roman games. The biggest theater, the biggest arena at the time when Revelation was written was in Rome and it was called the Circus Maximus. It was a huge chariot stadium, a big oval, and it could seat, best estimates are around about 200,000 people in the stadium. Olympic Stadium in London will seat 80,000 people. This seated 200,000 people. And John's point is that that is eclipsed by the scene of the countless multitude worshipping the Lamb in heaven. The greatest spectacle you can imagine on earth is nothing compared to what life will be when we finally come through this great tribulation. And there's all kinds of parallels here. In the, in the Roman games, the Circus Maximus, the winning charioteer would be presented with a palm branch as a sign of their victory. And look here, who has the palm branches now? All of those, the countless multitude, we've all got the palm branches. In this picture, it's a sign that the Lamb has won the victory and we're sharing in that victory through Him. And there's a great procession around the throne as we worship God. This doesn't mean that the new creation is just going to be some kind of eternal church service. But it means that life in the new creation will be infused with worship. It will be infused with the presence of God. And God, look at this beautiful phrase in verse, uh, where is it, verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Isn't that lovely? This picture of the tabernacle, the presence of God, no longer just in the center of the camp of Israel, but now the presence of God. God will tabernacle over us. The presence of God just enveloping us and consuming us. That is a picture of what life will be when we finally see God face to face after the troubles and the trials of this life are over. And that picture should breathe some hope back into our lives in the present, shouldn't it? I'll never forget uh, seeing Don Carson speak when he came out to New Zealand, a great biblical scholar from the States, and he came out, spoke in New Zealand many years ago out at Eastern Beach. And one night there was a question and answer session with him, and he was talking, someone had asked a question, he was talking away about the new creation, about the new heavens and the new earth and what life is going to be like then. And he was talking specifically about our resurrection bodies and the kind of renewal that we'll have physically and the kind of body we'll have. And just in passing, he, he contrasted, the body that we'll have in the new creation, with some of the ailments and, and disabilities that people have in the present. And one of them that he mentioned was Parkinson's. And as soon as he mentioned Parkinson's, a man in the audience put up a hand. It was a shaky hand. A and the man said, that's what I have. And there was a moment, this awkward moment, a bit like now, where everyone was just thinking, well, what's going to happen here? Because Don Carson had been waxing eloquent about the new creation and the resurrection body and it was all going so well and then it was all ground to a halt with this guy interjecting. 
And I remember Carson just moved into this beautiful pastoral mode and spoke to this guy like he was the only one in the room, full of compassion and mercy, and just painted a picture for him of what his renewed body would be like and what life would be like when the difficulties that he faced in this life were finally over and God would wipe away every tear from every eye. There'd be no more crying, mourning, pain, but our bodies would be renewed like the glorious body of the resurrected Jesus. I think by the time he'd finished that, there wasn't a dry eye in the whole building. And afterwards, this man came up and and, and just embraced Don Carson. I remember thinking, that's what this is supposed to be. This is not just abstract theology. This is not just pie in the sky when we die by and by. This is hope for the suffering. This is comfort for the afflicted. This is strength for the weary. This is life for those who are beaten down and crushed and afflicted. And at the end of their rope, there is hope here. If that's where you are this morning, if you're just feeling crushed, if you're feeling stressed out, if you are just exhausted and you're absolutely at the end of yourself, there is tremendous hope and strength here for you, knowing that evil doesn't have the last word. But the day is coming when God's going to lead you to these living waters. He's going to give you the living waters to drink in place of the bitter waters that you've been tasting in this life. There's something new coming. There's a new, and even though evil just feels all consuming in this present life, I know the darkness, the difficulties, it will just be a blip. And it is not worth comparing to the glories that are coming when Jesus returns and we worship him with all creation and all of God's redeemed people around the throne. There is hope here, there's life here, there's strength here in the person of Jesus. If you are feeling crushed this morning, if you are beaten up by life, if you're walking through that valley, then just know that you are sealed by the Spirit of God. Just know whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you're ready to acknowledge it or not, you're sealed by the Spirit of God. You are marked with the presence and the power of God. And it's the Spirit of God who is going to enable you to stand firm in the midst of what you're going through. You might not feel like you can take another step. That's okay. You don't have to. Just stand where you are. Just stand in the middle of the storm and stand anchored in the grace of God. Even when you can't talk to Him, even when you can't pray to Him, just know that the Spirit, as Romans 8 says, is interceding for you right now. Imagine that. The Spirit before the throne of God saying, Look at, look at Andrew over here. He's so weakened, he's broken, and he just doesn't even have the words right now to say. But let me express to you, Father, what's on his heart. Let me tell you what he needs. Let me intercede. Let me ask you to minister your grace. This is what the Spirit's doing for you right now. Even if you can't form the words on your lips to talk to God right now, you feel just so distant from Just be assured the Spirit is at work. Spirit is interceding. That's what it means to be marked and sealed by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of grace. And just know that evil doesn't have the final word. But one day this tribulation is going to give way to a glorious new creation. A fantastic new creation. When we will live in harmony and unity with God and all of his people. So just know if you're going through difficult times, if you're absolutely spent, just know that you are, if you're a follower of the Lamb, your life is still the answer to that question, who can stand 
You're a living answer to it. Because if, you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is you can stand. The answer is you can stand because you are marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit and you are held by the nail-pierced hands. What a great promise. Let's pray. You may be here this morning and just feeling just so exhausted. You may be experiencing this chaos, maybe at work, maybe with the kids, maybe that inner turmoil, depression, anxiety, anger, insecurity. Just encourage you for a minute to imagine yourself looking in a mirror and seeing on your forehead the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit marked on your forehead. God, I pray for every person here this morning, and especially those who are going through this tribulation right now, that you would remind them that they are marked, that they are sealed. Jesus, I pray that by your Spirit you would minister hope to them, you would minister grace to them, that you would lead them deeper into the rest that is in you, Jesus, enable them to know it, enable them to feel it. God, just pour out upon them the peace that transcends all understanding. And God, for those this morning for whom life is okay and there's no major thing coming against them, I pray that you would put steel in their bones to ready them for times of difficulty that are coming. Anchor us in your word, anchor us in the power of your spirit so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand and draw our hearts forward, God, to the new creation. May that be an anchor for our soul that day when you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And, and Father, from that beautiful picture, just breathe back hope into us in the present. God, we, just, we lean on your power and strength when we just don't have it in us. You are our strong tower. You are our shield. You're our fortress. You're our refuge. You are the God in whom we trust. We look to you. We wait patiently for you. Even in the midst of the valley, we know you're with us. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.